Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're on Team Human, boosting the autoimmune response of our species against viruses, media and biological. We are anathema to social distancing. We may be separated by space, but the quantum field we share doesn't know from meters or miles. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, pioneer of the worldwide localization movement and author of Local is Our Future, Helena Norberg-Hodge. The first step is to change the I to a we, because even if you want to try to change other things, going at it alone as an isolated individual, and you've been now worldwide categorized as a consumer, you've been brainwashed into believing that you have no power as a voter, as you connect with like-minded people, you're already starting on that journey. Helena will be explaining how globalization doesn't make things more efficient. It just gives corporations more ways to extract value from real people and real places. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and we're all on Team Human. Thanks, everybody, for taking your time to listen to us today. I know this is a tricky time in a lot of people's lives. And thanks especially to people who've chosen to support us like Ian Cunningham, Chad Adams, Andrew Sullen, Arlen Ledoux, and Dorothea Wallach. It means a whole lot to us to have you on Team Human as paying, contributing supporters and helping to keep our small staff alive and fed. You can all join Team Human as paying members at patreon.com slash teamhuman or come to teamhuman.fm and click on support. We don't have ads for a whole lot of reasons and you're what keep us alive. You can also check us out at medium.com slash team dash human, where you can hear the show. You can read written versions of the monologues and uh, read all my columns. 
And a special shout out to our live terrestrial listeners at xray.fm in Portland, KXRC in Durango, California, and KSPC in Claremont, California. If you want to hear Team Human on your radio station, please let us know at team at teamhuman.fm, especially if you have a contact or know someone at that station who can actually help us get on. Um, This has been a hard week for a lot of us. It was a particularly hard week for those of us who are friends with Genesis Breyer P. Orridge. He was a guest on the show, uh, gosh, about a year ago when he uh, first learned he had leukemia. He came on the show and you could hear the respirator in the background. And we really had a good old time together that day. And um, we spent a lot of time together in the last few months and uh, I'm sorry to say a couple of days ago, uh, Genesis died. He just um, couldn't breathe. He kept going to the hospital and they would like drain his lungs. And, you know, then he'd go home for a, a month or so and then have to go back. And then it was every couple of weeks. And then he'd just gotten out and um, he sounded great on Thursday. And then he looked kind of bad on Friday. And then uh, Saturday morning is uh, aid he had coming each day to bring uh, groceries in the morning and to take care of various medical things. She just said he uh, wasn't alive when she got there in the morning. So I, uh, I've been thinking a lot about about Jen and ended up writing a little uh, a little piece for uh, Boing Boing about our time together. I thought I'd uh, read you at least read from the notes I had for that. I first met Genesis Briar P. Orridge in 1993. I was working on my book, Media Virus, and I was about to return home to L.A. from San Francisco when Timothy Leary, of all people, he called and asked if I could make room for a friend in need who needed a ride. It's like, OK, great. I'll go and you know, gave me the address where to go and find this person. And that friend turned out to be Genesis P. Orridge. And I had known of Jen, you know, through his music and reputation, but I was honestly a little bit afraid to meet him because uh, I knew about the Temple of Psychic Youth and I had met a lot of these uh, boys who called themselves coyotes. And if they were modeling themselves after him, I could only imagine how fierce uh, Genesis would be. But when I pulled into this little parking garage where we were supposed to meet. And I saw the diminutive Genesis P. Orridge standing there with his two gorgeous young daughters, and they had all their little suitcases with them. My perception of him just changed entirely. And over the next eight hours, we took a long route, I guess, from San Francisco to L.A. My perception of the world changed really forever as well. Jen had just been sort of exiled from England after a video he made for Channel 4 in which he carried out the mock abortion of a, a woman you know, then ate the fetus with a bunch of kind of devil-worshipping people. It went viral in the tabloids. And Jen was in Thailand at the time doing like soup kitchens and research for all his kind of weirder spiritual stuff. And the British authorities, they ransacked his place. They seized his archives and they made it really clear in a phone call that he was no longer welcome in the UK. So he flew to California instead essentially as a, a homeless person with his kids. And he was 
pretty out of sorts as we took this drive down to L.A. for him to try to figure out a new life strategy with Timothy Leary. And his two daughters were fighting in the backseat. And I remember him saying, it's right on tape somewhere. He said, oh, if only people realized I was just a regular dad with two kids fighting in the backseat. And the rest of what he said, though, was not like some typical dad. It was like listening to the tweets of QAnon. We talked about the child pedophilia ring controlling the world. I mean, it turned out to be right, I guess. And the way that the powerful word of OV, you know, for ovum, that it was changed to of OF. And the value of taking too much psychedelics, because as he would say, the only good trip is a bad trip. And he would talk about how uh, piercing and scarification are an extension of Brian Geisen's cut up technique. I mean, this was like weird, like two guys on a bonding road trip, but not just for the way it broke open my brain, but for the way it really broke open my heart. You know, if anything made Genesis P. Orridge scary, it wasn't the machismo or Satanism or risk taking, but his openness, his his honesty, his tenderness. You know, yes, he did scary things like piercing his scrotum or getting gold teeth and summoning demons and becoming a they. But the scariest part of all was his staying so soft and squishy and loving, the little loving Jen Jen through all of it. And I remember what the late 90s, I guess, we decided to write a book together about, I guess, about everything. And we made about I don't know, I had done maybe five hours of tapes of our conversations over the years, but we holed up in this little country cabin. It was a really strange thing, you know, him and his, all of his kind of weird outfits and piercings and stuff. And we're in this tiny little country cabin in upstate New York, and we're going to make more tapes. And Jen had this new thing, this compact disc recorder. I don't know if any of you remember those things. It was sort of on the way to digital. And we recorded maybe eight, 10 hours of material in all states of consciousness. But when he got home, he called me and he was so upset. He said none of them had recorded properly or he had gone over them repeatedly. He just didn't do the right thing. And it was the moment he decided that digital was not a good thing because even though digital is supposed to remember everything, digital also forgets the stuff that you really want to save. And we did all sorts of projects together. I eventually got to help him reconceive Psychic TV as PTV3. And I even went on tour with him as really right along the same time that she, well, that he became a she and then a they. And I got to watch and participate from safe behind him and a full set of keyboards as he showed his brand new set of breasts to a crowd of very confused, mostly male devotees. And they were all still wearing those macho sort of paramilitary outfits from one of Jen's prior incarnations. And these guys were shocked, right? Was their hero softening? And over the course of that evening, I watched Jen 
break them down. And I really think they came to understand that he was daring them to break their understanding, not just of gender, but of courage and of autonomy. Yes, I still call him a he at that point, because, you know, when I asked him at that point, I said, well, do you kind of see yourself now as a, as a chick with a dick? And he said, no, more man with tits. And he really, he saw himself as a guy still at that point. But of course, Jen ultimately turned out to be neither and both. He became what he called a pandrogene, breaking sexual binaries altogether and attempting to revolt, not just against the prejudices of our society, but the authority of DNA itself. He said that DNA is an alien virus. That's what they would say, that it turned previously immortal creatures into separate genders limited by death. And Genesis, he embarked on this pandrogyne experiment with his partner, Lady J, originally Miss Jackie, who was a, a dominatrix who worked at this dungeon on Lexington and 23rd. And I remember the day that Jen met her, he actually asked me to come meet him up there. I went up to the dungeon. I was in the waiting room and he came out and he showed me these two big slices that she had gouged in his chest with a razor. And he smiled to me and he said, oh, she gets it. Or, or maybe it was like, she gets me. And they got married like a year later. And Jen and Jackie were really among the two friends my wife, Barbara, and I could just go to dinner and be totally normal with. They would often present her with a little mod skirt or a tiny sweater they found at a vintage store and they just thought would be perfect. And they would have these fights. I mean, long drawn out fights, not like in front of us, but like themselves, but over like weeks where Jen would just get fed up usually because she was doing too much of the wrong drugs or something and become convinced that their relationship was over and he'd come stay on my futon for a few days at a time. I mean, just imagine having little Genesis Peorge staying on your futon. It was so intense, but so sweet. And, you know, eventually they always worked through whatever it was. And from the moment they embarked on the Pandrogeny Project for real, they were genuinely like this one being. They weren't talking about changing genders so much as becoming a complete gender together. And that's why when when the great Lady J suddenly died, Jen was so broken. I mean, it must have been, what, 10, 15 years ago at this point. I mean, it's terrible enough to lose a wife and a life partner, but they had just spent the last decade merging life, art, love, gender, and self with Lady J. There was no he or she. There was only they. Jen lost half of themselves. And we spent many weeks, I mean, maybe months, looking at whether breaking sex should become breaking death. Jen was convinced for a long while that he could still communicate with her on the other side and that maybe the project was finally reaching its true fruition, that she was still pushing certain pictures off the wall and certain books off the shelf. And Jen was inferring the meanings and coincidences of it all. And we considered the possibility that they might not only cut and paste pictures, music and culture and gender, but they could cut and paste life and death, break the illusion of the other side altogether, liberate from the tyranny of DNA, and that this would be the big one. But as time went on, 
the visitations from Jackie became less frequent and I guess less convincing. Jen returned to music and poetry now as a single they. And there were new girlfriends, even a new true love about whom Jen couldn't help but share all the steamy details. It was like like being in high school or something. But as Jen got sick with leukemia and more limited in what they could do, you know, shows got canceled, things got genuinely scary. I mean, Jen started on a book about their life, told through encounters they had with everyone from Mick Jones to William Burroughs. Maybe we can, I'm hoping, get some of the finished chapters online or in a different kind of collection. They were they were good. I'm glad I didn't accept any of the invitations to write Jen's obituary. There were many Jen's, and I think that's part of the point, you know, to try to write an authoritative obituary of Jen kind of defeats that point. By the late 90s, as the terrible future of digital surveillance became obvious to anyone who cared to notice, Jen explained to me and to everyone, really, that anomalous behavior would become our only defense. And Jen may have been the greatest enactor of anomaly in our lifetime, but no matter how much Genesis Briar Peorage mutated over the decades, Jen's kind, sweet, and vulnerable essence remained a constant living reminder that staying soft and playful, no matter what, is the greatest possible threat to the status quo. I love you, Jen Jen. So I was supposed to be doing a talk this week at South by Southwest. I mean, guess what? Yeah, it was canceled along with the rest of America, it feels like, and the world. It was going to be about fake news. That's what they wanted me to talk about. And in a kind of a glib nod to Stanley Kubrick's Dr. Strangelove, I was going to call it How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love Fake News. Because like that montage of atomic bomb images at the end of the movie, the images on our TV screens, they're not the real things we should be worried about. They're the distractions, the figures. They are the designated photographic threats capable of garnering ratings or standing in for an enemy and conforming to the needs of television as a medium and as an industry. And just like that 3D representation of the coronavirus, with which we're all now so familiar, the way it's complemented by custom logos and scary theme songs on each one of the cable networks, you know, it's real news. You know, the virus is certainly real. But is it the real story? Is television even capable of serving up the deeper, contextual, or applicably relevant truth at all? 
you know, the point I was hoping to make in my talk was that the preponderance of fake news and deep fakes online could just restore the primacy of trusted news agencies and journalists, that the less we can trust the veracity of videos, the more we have to depend on those whose very responsibility it is to determine the provenance and context of things. And this isn't new. And this is as old as the public needing a real reporter to verify the facts behind a story. And if anything, the more accustomed we become to the idea that video pictures have no more claim to truth than something we read or hear, then the less power these constructed images should have over us. But what I'm thinking about now is what about when those images aren't fake? in the sense that they're untrue or falsified? What if they're fake in the way those atomic bomb blasts were at the end of Dr. Strangelove? They're more like news porn, images designed to provoke engagement through terror, as if to compete with the sensationalism these networks believe make social media so compelling. You know, right after the Las Vegas Democratic primaries, I happened to turn on MSNBC, and there was a picture of some building in Las Vegas, I guess, where the debates had happened. I didn't know what I was turning on to, though, and there was a caption underneath it, shots fired in Vegas draw blood. As Chris Matthews, I think, was repeating the words bleeding and bleeding and bleeding. And of course, it turns out he was referring to Elizabeth Warren's televised skewering of candidate Michael Bloomberg. But the words took me back immediately to the mass shooting in Vegas of, what, a year or two ago. And I'm thinking, how could a TV network be so insensitive to such an obvious trigger? I mean, consciously or not, the producers were simply doing their job of generating the most sensation by any means necessary. And now that we're in the midst of this slow motion viral crash of unknown magnitude, I'm beginning to see how television just can't help but fail us in our time of need. The medium itself seems to be biased towards the worrying that Kubrick is suggesting is so self-destructive. By surrendering our faculties to the tube, we relegate our real-world problems to the logic of television. And that's not where it's going to be solved. I mean, those of us watching TV for our sense-making about COVID-19, we've been living under a sustained assault. The real virus is invisible. It's among us. He's in the house. You know, so the best TV can do is put up images, figures, and bodies that represent the virus. Characters and objects like the Chinese, immigrants, airplanes, masks. And our newscasters, our leaders, our would-be leaders, they're likewise simply avatars for oversimplified approaches to managing public anxiety. Anderson Cooper, Chris Cuomo, they attempt to embody our moral outrage, criticizing every Trump administration move as if he were intentionally steering the Titanic into an iceberg. I mean, I guess that feels good for a moment, but really... And for his part, Trump seems intent on using television to undermine the gravity with which our health experts want us to treat the virus. His kind of semi-incoherent speeches, they suggest he still doesn't know what all this fuss is about, as if the crisis isn't quite bad enough even to pull him out of his 
daydreams. He shakes hands and shares a microphone with all these people, even as they explain the importance of social distancing. Because as Trump knows better than anyone, it's the pictures that matter on TV. Even his decision to discourage testing for those exposed to the virus it seems devised less to promote the disease than to discourage bad stats making their way onto TV, as if bad disease numbers were the equivalent uh, of bad ratings. And then I saw Biden go on there. You know, Biden went on and he does this speech as if he's trying to show, well, this is what TV would look like if I were president. You know, this sort of West Wing like monologue that he does. And when he was up there trying to act like what a competent president would look like, I couldn't help but think, man, if Elizabeth Warren were president, she would have already executed on a plan to manufacture additional respirators, to train personnel to operate them. You know, but no, Warren is not on TV. You know, she failed television or maybe television failed her, you know, because the real story is not happening on the tube at all, but here on the ground in the real world. And to engage with the ground, I think our digital platforms may be the better choice of media. I mean, sure, a whole lot of what happens on the Internet, I know. It just reflects and amplifies TV's shortcomings. Into the sense-making vacuum that television created comes the full spectrum of alternative narratives, some of them more useful than others, right? So one of the first memes to spread online, it was a set of instructions for how to test oneself for COVID-19 by counting the number of seconds you can hold your breath, right? Not true, right? Likewise, you know, the folks interpreting QAnon, they're convinced that the virus and the quarantines are giving cover to an imminent Trump military operation to capture over a thousand deep state pederasts. That'd be nice to see the capture of a thousand deep state pederasts. I wish we didn't need a virus to cover it up. But the reason they're doing it, I feel like, you know, they, they say that uh, by Easter, you know, we'll have watched all this happen. And odd as it may sound, you know, I feel like these narratives, they're actually comforting to their intended audiences who've already been traumatized by television's ruthless fear mongering. Like, if I can just hold my breath for 10 seconds, it means I don't have the disease. Or if I just sit back and eat canned food for a couple of weeks, the military is going to dismantle the deep state and stop a ring of pederasts and erase my debt. I mean, it's a sacrifice, you know, that feels almost worth it. But there are also ways that the net is truly rising to the occasion in ways that television, with its addiction to the image, just can't do. For instance, uh, there's a kid named Avi Schiffman, a 17-year-old kid in Washington State, a high school junior who was unsatisfied with the paucity of facts on TV. And he built what might still be the most comprehensive and accessible map of available global data on COVID-19. He collected and cross-referenced data available through the APIs of all the different national health departments, the World Health Organization, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And he's got this website that's not only showing data of contagion rates and deaths, but because it would be cool, he said, he's also posting more positive information. 
uh, like num- numbers of the number of people who've recovered in each different place. And he said, this is a quote, he's, he was like on the Today Show, it shows that it's not all negative. The recovery number is big. And meanwhile, like in neighborhoods around the country, in my neighborhood, people are creating Google groups, WhatsApp lists, Facebook groups, and other simple ways to communicate with one another about what's happening on the ground, whether we're sharing testing data, medical information, food availability, or simply comforting one another. We're using the micro-local capabilities of the internet to escape television's competing narratives and then take control of our own experience. Honestly, I would be lying if I said I wasn't worried about the coming virus. I am. Just like many of you, I am freaked out. But I'll be damned if I'm going to let television determine my relationship to this thing. We are not spectators of the COVID show, but participants. This is a moment that we need to leverage the very best of our emerging digital sensibilities and capabilities. The less we fixate on images designed to distract, hypnotize, or trigger us, the more we invite our agency to the fore. And this is how we, as a society, develop the cultural immune response required to face such a challenge together. There couldn't be a better time to bring Helena Norberg-Hodge on our show. Helena has been arguing against global economics and its false promises of efficiency for many, many years. As we in America and Europe now confront the downsides of our entirely corporate global supply chains and how they've ended up denying us the ability to manufacture, say, mechanical respirators where and when we need them, we must turn to people like Helena and her organization, Local Futures, to figure out how to restore the basic competencies and currencies we need to become sustainably sufficient once again. Helena, it's Delightful to have you on Team Human. I was hoping maybe you could tell the Team Human audience a little bit about how you rediscovered for us that everything works better locally. I rediscovered it in a very profound way because I ended up in this part of the world that had not been in any way globalized. There was a remote part of Tibet called Ladakh that belonged politically to India. And when I arrived there in the mid-70s, it had just been opened up to to the outside world. It had been sealed off for political reasons. No one had been allowed to go there in the modern era. And in the colonial era, it just wasn't of interest to the British. So they were allowed to maintain their own local economy, their own development for thousands of years. And I found a really thriving people and the rich culture, there was no unemployment, there was no poverty, as we know poverty. And then I witnessed how the economic growth and development progress created poverty, created pollution on a scale that had again never existed, and with it, divisiveness. So I became a passionate advocate for decentralized or more localized development already in in the 70s. And then how did you uh, begin to try to uh, convince the world of its local nature? 
I started by having seen such clear, almost black and white lessons in Ladakh and also in Bhutan. I had seen how this process not only led to poverty and competition, but actually culminated in violence, in conflict between groups that had lived side by side for 500 years, Buddhists and Muslims in Bhutan, Hindus and Buddhists, because they'd been pushed off the land away from a dependence on others in their community and a dependence on the land and water around them into suddenly being thrown into this urban environment where they were dependent on jobs and dollars distributed by distant, anonymous, centralized forces. And in that sort of prison-like situation, fear and greed rose very rapidly. And and what was created almost overnight was unemployment, you know, which had never, ever existed before. I've thought about that a lot. And I've written a lot about the corporatization of Europe in the 11th, 12th, 13th century and how medieval townspeople who were used to trading with one another with local currencies and really creating and exchanging value, how now they all had to borrow money from a central treasury and they all had to work for chartered monopolies. And the behavioral economic theories that came out of that era and beyond are all based on the assumption that people are not living in a networked community. So they use uh, the game theory analysis of the prisoner's dilemma to explain how people are going to act. And it's like, well, yeah, prisoners will act that way, you know, but people in their natural environment in a community won't necessarily act as self-interested individuals. Exactly, because it's also of a human scale and much more visible structures. The good of the community and the good of the individual are so clearly one and the same. The sort of altruism that developed in the industrialized world wasn't really necessary. It was just a beautiful coming together of very clear feedback loops, you know, knowledge systems that showed you that there was, you know, there was just no doubt about it. It was in your interest to look after the community because they looked after you. I mean, we're born into a world where we're all dependent on these central long distance shareholder owned institutions for everything, you know, for groceries, for telecommunications, for education, for government, that we end up accepting that as a condition of nature. And when we don't have time for our family because we need three jobs and we've got to be all online, we all feel guilty about it. I feel like your book, not that it's just giving us something new to blame, but it it helps us to realize, no, we are not awful, selfish people who don't have time for our kids because we're addicted to work. We're thrust into a situation where how are we supposed to have time for our family? It's things like globalization and the World Bank and trade agreements and nationalism and and a high tech society that's making us incapable of engaging with people the way we want to. Absolutely. And I think that's, for me, one of the most important points I want to make is that I feel I have a really positive message, a truly empowering one and hopeful one, because we're not aware, but the dominant 24-7 narrative that we're swimming in and constantly being bombarded with is telling us the problem is human nature, it's human greed, it's overpopulation, it's us. 
you know, we're having the finger pointed at us for climate change, for poverty on the other side of the world, for poverty in our own country. And the average person is working harder and harder just to stay in place. Why? Because of an economic system that we just haven't been helped to pay attention to. And particularly these remote trade treaties, which were a process of change, rather than a sort of clear, you know, bank building like the World Bank or the IMF, but the institution of regularly deregulating global trade, which was brought in at the end of the Second World War, that process has been responsible for massive destruction and it's just, it's very high time that we wake up to it. Right. So you really mean from Bretton Woods through the Euro, through NAFTA, through the PPC, whatever they called it, that this is all really kind of the WTO, the World Bank and the IMF delocalizing economics and then victimizing people in places around the entire planet. And in the process, you know, I've worked with economists in America and England who have shown very clearly that as the economy has been growing, the average person has been getting poorer, meaning you can't go by the numbers of money earned. You've got to look at how many hours are you working to put food on the table, to pay the rent, to pay for the basic needs now, like education and healthcare. And then you'll see that the average person has been getting poorer and poorer and that the gap between rich and poor has risen in an obscene, unacceptable way. It's this combination of obscene and clearly unsustainable, the gap between rich and poor, the economic insecurity, the fear, and combined with climate change and extinction of species, that means that people are waking up. But I think there's a a very important step there to wake up to the global structures and see that global system more clearly in order to understand why localizing is so fundamentally important. Some of the first people to recognize the problems with these kind of global economic consolidation or corporatization of everything are the Brexit-obsessed Brits, the the Trump Americans. I mean, in some ways, at least the urge to, to nationalize and to reestablish boundaries is an urge toward the local, isn't it? No, I'm afraid not. It's It really isn't a step towards localizing at all. It's a very frightening step towards looking at how can we continue with this insane way of measuring growth and insane addiction to more trade, but do it on our terms. So that's what Trump is about. And, you know, the fundamental truth that depending more and more on global trade means depending more and more on global monopolistic corporations that have been given more and more freedom. That's what free trade has been. They have therefore had regulations removed. They pay virtually no tax. And they've had a red carpet of global infrastructure rolled out, paid by our tax monies. So every business that operates within the national, regional, local arena is subjected to heavy regulation and heavy taxation, squeezed from every angle. And then in turn, these global monopolies have exactly the opposite experience. So we're, we're dealing with something which no self-respecting 
even neoliberal can, can accept that we're going to be subsidizing monopolies. Do you think that when climate treaties are negotiated on a global scale, do you think they fall into those same sorts of traps? Absolutely. It's very, very frightening to see that. I have a close colleague in my network, the International Alliance for Localization, Camila Moreno, who's been at all the climate negotiations, all the summits for the last 11 years. And it's very clear, she says, that it's essentially the framing and the all, all the basic thinking comes from corporate bodies that are imposing what they call standards on countries, going along with the the imposition also of a legal framework of complete kangaroo courts where governments are signing in black and white. We won't do anything that might reduce your profit-making ability. So you, foreign investor, you know, be it Volkswagen, be it a bank, we won't do anything that might reduce your profit. And at the same time, in the climate negotiations, countries are being bullied into bringing in changes in agriculture that are very frightening. It's heavy pressure towards equipment from robots to drones to satellites that will do the carbon monitoring uh, at a global scale. It's telling countries you will not be insured, the giant insurance monopolies, unless you conform to these new rules set by corporations. So we need very urgently to wake up to that global situation. I feel very privileged in a way to be able to say there's no need for blaming any particular government, any particular corporation or CEO. The need is to wake up to how the system works and realize that we are all losers in this game. People are more blindly running and supporting an outdated, crazy, counterproductive dogma about growth through more global trade. And that means also growth through ever more energy-intensive strategies. The question is then, uh, for a, uh, a well-meaning activist or Extinction Rebellion person and all, then are we misplacing our efforts to uh, try to push towards a Paris Climate Accord and those sorts of agreements? I think so. That I would definitely say so, because those accords in the first place are not dealing with the very simple and clear and easy ways that we as societies could systemically reduce emissions. First of all, we have to look at where is all this energy going? Where is all this pollution coming from? And it's primarily from the globalized economy, where every day identical foodstuffs are being flown and shipped across the world. Countries are routinely importing and exporting the same product, milk, butter, beef. The U.S. exports about a, ton, ton, um, a billion tons of beef, tons of imports about a billion tons of beef, on and on and on. And you will find that around the world, as a consequence of a rigged energy-intensive, meaning fossil fuel-intensive system, products that have come from the other side of the world are generally cheaper than products that have come from a mile away. That's a general rule, but you don't see it very clearly unless you study what's going on globally from this perspective. 
then you have to look at the costs that are being externalized, that are <laughs> just externalized off the books. Absolutely. And that's in addition, you know, that's something that some environmentalists have been on to routinely. Fish is being flown across the world from Norway to China to be deboned. Scallops from Tasmania to be peeled in, in China, flown back again. Nuts flown from Australia to China to be cracked open. Shrimp flown from England to Thailand to be peeled, flown back again. Apples flown from England to South Africa to be washed and flown back again. Now that insanity again Ending that would be the fastest way of systemically reducing emissions, and yet we don't hear anything about it. You know, a lot of times I get invited, you know, around the world to do talks or to engage with people or to speak with students, and I've been feeling like I have to turn these things down now that I understand the carbon footprint involved in, in doing any of this. How do we judge when it's okay for us to take those kinds of big jet fuel intensive trips? Well, I would argue that we should all be quite consciously supporting any time people are traveling to try to deal with the ecological or social problems facing us. And that means a lot of that may not be great, including the climate negotiation, but still we're crazy not to embrace that. And in fact, when governments meet, to negotiate climate treaties, nobody is saying they shouldn't travel. But when it comes to environmentalists traveling, to me, to try to, to discuss, to understand, to collaborate, which is far more important right now, it's more important than ever before. It's tragic that people are saying, no, we shouldn't travel. No, they shouldn't travel. In the meanwhile, the promoters of rampant consumerism, built-in obsolescence, I mean, really destructive change, proponents of mass tourism, these people are traveling more than ever before. And that precisely the people who are trying to collaborate to bring about a different narrative, to bring about a different way of doing things, shouldn't travel. It's extremely counterproductive right now. When I read your work, I sometimes wonder, what do we start with? At this point, you know, with my own Team Human book and work, I've been telling people to learn how to just be with one another again, just learn how to look in someone's eyes, learn how to breathe. And when I read from your book, it says, from community gardens to farmers markets, from alternative learning spaces to local business alliances and co-ops, what all these have in common is a renewal of place-based relationships that reflect an enduring and innately human desire for love and connection. And I almost wonder, what order do we do this? Or do we do it all at the same time? Do we need to reduce our fear of one another and learn to reconnect in order to rebuild these community institutions? Or do we just focus on the institutions and then the sort of the, the rapport will come? The first step is to change the I to a we. Because even if you want to try to change other things, going at it alone as an isolated individual, and you've been now worldwide categorized as a consumer, you've been brainwashed into believing that you have no power as a voter, partly because obviously the political scene has become so corrupted, but there has been in these last 30 years, as part of the process of globalization, has been the systematic way that the environmental movement, the social movement has stopped talking about policy change and is talking about what we can do as individuals. First step we encourage people is to connect with some like-minded people 
in the area where they live, not necessarily neighbors or families or friends, because you need to try to identify people who are now interested in sitting down and thinking about what can I do to make my life, my own life, better and the state of the world. And here we feel we offer an agenda, we offer a set of lenses, a new paradigm that can speedily help us to move in a systemic way. In other words, we're looking at choices we can make that will have both a social and environmental impact. And more than that, we'll have a personal benefit as well as a social and even political one. As you connect with like-minded people, you're already starting on that journey, which needs to be reinforced by the recognition that we've been isolated into little nuclear family ghettos, where out of fear, we've ended up building very thick walls between that nuclear family and the rest of the world. And so we, we've ended up fearful of exposing our vulnerabilities and our problems and always putting on a, an aura of perfection. So one of the first steps is to recognize that and to start taking steps towards being real, vulnerable, and sharing our problems with one another. What is absolutely fundamental to our humanity is being part of a group. We evolved in a tribal, deeper connection to one another. And it needs to be as much as possible intergenerational, not staying in ghettos of age monocultures, which are imposed on us through schooling. Well, I, we feel we have a lot of deep lessons based on experience from very traditional indigenous nature-based cultures to the most modern situation. I mean, the trick is that the relatively few people who really um, get this and are willing to do something about it, they try to s set up a, a local bakery or a, a community-supported agriculture farm or do permaculture farming. And Right now, they're up against so many obstacles, you know, corporate competition, even trying to provide a decent wage and health care for their employees when they don't have the scale of the big agra company next to them, or they don't have the ability to lobby for land use the way that their corporate brothers and sisters can, or employees leaving because they'd rather just get a stable corporate job. It's really hard. They're, they're taking one for the team right now. In some ways, it feels for many of them, it's almost too early because the board seems tilted against them on a systemic level. For the time being, anyway, we've got sort of five words we like to leave people with, which are connect, educate, resist, renew, and celebrate. And the idea is that first step is connection. So we're changing the I to a we. With that brief, how can I improve my life and the state of the world? Educate. There's an urgent need to just take a little bit of time to step back, look at that bigger picture, which is how this global system has removed us from nature, from community, from our deep humanity into a stress and fear and speed and impoverishment. Literally, we're getting poorer. And in that education process, we would like to pe people to look both at 
what they need to resist and what they need to renew. And the resistance to a great extent starts with intellectual resistance to continuing to buy into the dominant narrative. And that would include thinking, you know, the Paris Accord is where it's at. Even believing that just working on climate or just working on poverty, right now that's not going to be the productive and hopeful way forward. The way forward has to do with recognizing the need for systemic change. And it's essentially the economic system, but that's become much more than that. It's a culture of consumerism and, and, you know, as we were talking about before, of perfect identity. And it's a whole package of things. But stepping back to understand that and articulating our resistance, starting a type of activism that I call big picture activism, where we get out this broader message that can link many people together for policy change. And that policy change is beginning to happen at the level of local government around the world. It's very small. And what we're seeing around the world is that local governments generally are more responsive because they can see they're closer to the ground. They see the destruction to the natural world. They see the destruction to people. You know, that's why there were 111 mayors or something in America that wanted to ratify the Kyoto Protocol, you know, while the national government was moving in the opposite direction. And you see that pattern worldwide when you when you put on these new lenses, you know, looking at this global local paradigm shift, all of this becomes clearer and I think more hopeful because you're right, you know, we're up against this huge heavy system But despite that, I'm seeing literally every day in my inbox, I get more examples of good news where people have either intuitively or, you know, through more conscious search, discovered these fundaments of rebuilding more community-based, nature-based ways of doing things. You know, we would be encouraging something like Unbreaking America. If people haven't heard of that, they should look that up. It's the clarity that left and right have been doing the same thing and systemically taking us towards poverty and environmental destruction. We need to take back politics. So it's not just a question of when we think policy that we want to talk to our representatives because they aren't representing us today. We need to articulate very clearly what we want and then we start putting other representatives in place through right. a, a people's movement demanding change. You start, I mean, exactly where I start. I mean, on the, the back cover of uh, my Team Human book is the only the words, find the others. You know, find the others is the, at first the others who are like-minded and then the people who are truly other to you, you know, to see the human being and the people that you think are the other side, because it turns out you know, they're not. They're on the same side working against the same structural problems. But you, you take it much further in that you're not saying that l- l- all localism happens locally. I mean, on a certain level, in order to engage in localism, we need to change certain, you know, larger tax policies and trade treaties and energy policy in order to free local communities to take the steps they need to take. Absolutely. And it's a really important uh, point. You know, we are in local futures, we're promoting localization from a global perspective and recognizing that it's going to require global collaboration. 
that is quite empowering to realize that the first area we should be looking at is the social and environmental movements, and that includes the spiritual movements, it includes the women's movement, it includes, you know, any and everyone who is really working to make the world a better place. Those people coming together with a unified understanding of the need for systemic change are probably numerous enough to make that change. But I also just want to say that the renewal side that we can start right now is we can actually join local projects that are very local and particularly around food, establishing closer relationships between producers and consumers in something as vitally important as food. Every single day, people around the world need food about three times a day. We're talking about, you know, 24 billion times a day. What is done there is completely fundamental to the fate of the planet. And when people start having that foundation, then they build on from that with local finance, with local business alliances, with sometimes small-scale local energy. They start looking at making changes to schooling and education. All of these initiatives that are happening are extremely positive. Yeah, they're extremely positive, but they're also extremely difficult. You, like I, know many of the people working on these, and they come up against you know obstacles in every single direction, plus terrible publicity because you're doing uh, organic farming and there's E. coli here or you know some other problem there. All of a sudden, it's supposed to be discrediting an entirely more clean system, or because we're taking care of the topsoil, it's costing a little bit more this harvest, but it will cost less over the next 50 harvests if we have soil that's being replenished rather than soil that, that we need to go to Monsanto for a chemical in order to get it to grow something that looks like vegetables. What I often say is that realizing how immense the pressure is in the opposite direction, all those heavy regulations, no help from media, no help from government, I mean, no help from anywhere really. I'm amazed at how much is happening, you know. So it's both incredibly inspiring and heartening and a testament to human perseverance and to human goodwill. I really feel this is perhaps the most important thing that I've discovered is that, of course, people want to have connection. Everybody is ultimately, it's about wanting to be loved and seen and respected. All this show-off, with the billionaires and trillionaires who are motivated still by earning more. It's all about being loved and recognized. But in this perverted way, you know, all that path does is to lead to envy and separation. And I would love people to have more contact with the grassroots globally to be able to see that there is so much more happening at that level than you would believe. I also take heart in seeing that the dominant culture clearly now has the understanding there is something fundamentally wrong with allowing global multinational banks and businesses to have so much power. That's a widespread recognition. There's almost no one in the world who would question that. At the same time, I see this global increased sympathy for indigenous culture and, and you know, land-based ways of living. 
I also see globally a clear increase in the interest in food and small-scale farming. The big stranglehold is not what people want, is not who people are, is not the reality of how we could still change things. But partly there's a um, an almost an ingrained fear of becoming local and then becoming irrelevant. So on the one hand, there's people who will criticize me when I'm talking about localism of, oh, well, that's fine for you to say as an elite where you can afford a farmer's market or that, oh, so you're going to retreat from the whole world now and leave all those poor starving people in Africa and Bangladesh while you now go go to Vermont and have your local solar farm or something as if we are you know retreating from the responsibility of the world and i think what you're sharing and the the sense that i got from reading the book is that no 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 it's actually localism becomes your portal your entree to actually experiencing the whole world you know it's it's through the soil it's you know, you don't figure out the Gaia hypothesis necessarily by seeing a picture of the Earth from space. You know, you figure out the Gaia hypothesis by engaging with nature at a human scale, at the local level, at the at the level at which your human body can actually experience it, rather than just your brain seeing some picture on TV. Exactly. And in fact, you know, for me, the demise of the environmental movement was linked to that image of us holding the earth in our hands rather than the earth holding us in its hands, you know, and us embedded in the earth, exactly as you said. And I've seen very clearly that people who feel embedded in community, and it's extremely important to know that that's started in most cultures with intergenerational community and every mother having, you know, about 10 other caretakers for every child. And this is true in many communities until very recently. It's completely dehumanizing to be running after technology, which is what we're doing. Why is life getting faster and faster? Entirely to do with the technological systems, which were supposed to help us, we're supposed to save time. No, what they've done is to help the accumulation of wealth at the top and create vast systems of extraction. Those systems provide that wealth generation at the top and make us poorer, not just in terms of money, but time. The time poverty is probably the most frightening thing that's happening. And like I said before, you know, the suspicion of big business and the affirmation of more indigenous um, ways of doing things, those are really very, very heartening. But we just have to translate that into a better understanding of the techno-economic system that we often embrace because we don't understand it. Right. And I mean, I think we we get regularly accused of romanticizing some past. Or if we talk about indigenous people, now we're stuck in, you know, Rousseau's noble savage and we're mythologizing people who are actually suffering and have no antibiotics. How do we help people understand that we're not asking to go back into history, but to retrieve the mechanisms that we've left behind and, and artificially repressed in order to support global capitalism? I often now talk about the old local and the new local. And, you know, people, who, when, you, when you start promoting localization, you know, their experience of a, a small local community is usually of a community 
that has been marginalized for hundreds of years. We've had hundreds of years of promoting urbanization linked to global trade. And as you've documented, you know, starting in the Middle Ages in Europe, those communities have been left behind. They've been made to feel stupid and backward. They've been marginalized. They don't have the power. They don't have the self-respect. So the new local, when you start looking at this around the world, you will find these new hubs everywhere where people have gathered who have actually tasted the life in the big city. They've gone down the route, you know, the logical route is away from the land, into the city, into the high rise, into that apartment where you can't even open the windows and you're so far removed from life. You're surrounded by screens. It's like it's mirrors basically leading to this show off shallow culture that doesn't make you happy. They're not comparing themselves with the real human beings. Real human beings all have strengths and weaknesses. So we can be much more self-accepting when we're part of a real community where we know each other. So anyway, people who have tasted that are coming back and longing for connection to the land, to the plants, the animals, to community. You know, and people are understanding that the low prices in the world around them have such high costs, you know, in the long term, that they're willing to invest in something that's going to end up much more circular in its economic uh, distribution. We have to be aware that too often, if people don't have a systemic understanding, they'll only think, okay, how can we help small local businesses? get bigger without any sense of what kind of businesses, what are the businesses that we really need that are really meaningful and important to support. You know, we don't need another, you know, tourist agency or some new branch or some new form of makeup or, you know, let's look at the basics and let's also look at building up awareness about the need to maintain more human scale structures and Part of that needs to be attention to scale. And once you're once you're paying attention to scale, then you realize the object of the game is not to grow your local businesses; exactly. it's to get your local businesses to the to the right size for them to be sustainable and to serve their community, which is an entirely different objective. Exactly, and I think there too, what's so important is to realize that sometimes to keep the right scale, a private family farm or private family restaurant or whatever it might be can work extremely well. So, you know, people think somehow private and profit or or even, you know, the term business, private, profit are all negative terms because they're not distinguishing between the relatively small community-based within a social framework that ensures a type of ethical and a healthy foundation as opposed to business, private and profit in the global economy. In a family business, your kids are going to school with the customers' kids and the workers' kids. You're you're doing it for a very, you're running a business to own the business, not to sell the business. Yeah. And also you're looking at a situation where, you know, just getting bigger and bigger and growing 
is something that the business owner themselves might not be so aware of, but this is where we need that broader education about scale so that the consumers will also not become loyal customers when the clear motivation for the local business is to just keep growing. And and we're seeing that in the localization movement. There are many, including many food initiatives that we supported in our organization that became so popular and so loved and just grew and grew and grew. Now they're across the entire country and, you know, giant lorries, just like the supermarkets. And that's not really what what we want to support. No, they've got to learn about the, you know, the old Catholic notion of subsidiarity, you know, that no business grows larger than it needs to be in order to serve its purpose. You know, and once it gets to that point and other people need it, you start another one somewhere else. You don't have to do it yourself. Yes, exactly. You know, growth through replication, maybe in some cases, maybe some type of franchising could work too. Generally, it's also the consumer and the civic society member who needs to be more educated on the issue of scale for both ecological and social reasons. You know, often what I see is that the owner of a small local family business and um, the CEO of a big corporation, they are not necessarily that different as human beings, but it's the structure of the giant that is a disaster and and the structure of the smaller business that's so much better that it's not necessarily a question of good guys and bad guys which is a, a nice place to end because we kind of started with that false narrative of the good guys and bad guys i i like rapping there but besides uh, watching the documentary the economics of happiness and reading local is our future which is a delightfully short but packed read. What should people do? Where should they go to find out more about how to actually kind of relocalize their own communities? Please come to localfutures.org, our website, and we do have so much material there. We have a whole Planet Local series. We have lots of blogs. We have Also, we have workshop kits for people who want to start in their own area doing something and we're, we're also developing materials for people who want to set up a local hub this is not about just going local. It's about the need to wake up to the global situation, get the word out, big picture activism that could, in a much shorter period than we believe, transform the biggest system. And I'm so glad that you're there because I, I feel like my job is to sort of uh, bring the horse to the water, but you're the actual water for them to drink. In other words, you're not just motivating them to do this. You're actually giving them the scaffolding, the tools, the PDFs that they need to actually realize some of these things and the nice, small, rewarding steps um, that they can take today. I'm very glad that you're there, Douglas. Thank you so much for doing this. You've been on Team Human. Our guest today was Helena Norberg-Hodge, author of Local is Our Future and founder of Local Futures, which you can find at localfutures.org. You can find out more about Helena and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support this show. Team Human is a production of the Laboratory for Digital Humanism at Queens College. Our community manager is Michael Bass. Our editor is Luke Robert Mason. Our producer is Josh Chapdelin. And our reason for being is you. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps.
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 